0: chapter 1, verses 56 through 80. Verses 56 through 58. And Mary abode with her about three months, and returned to her own house. Now Elizabeth's full time came that she should be delivered, and she brought forth a son. And her neighbors and her cousins heard how the Lord had showed great mercy upon her, and they rejoiced with her. Burkett notes. Two things are here observable. One, the civil courtesy of the Virgin Mary towards her cousin Elizabeth. She stays with her three months, probably till she was delivered and brought to bed, not leaving her just at the time of her travail. For the angel had told Mary, verse 36, that it was then the sixth month with Elizabeth, after which Mary stays with her three months, which made up the full time. To visit and accompany our friends in the time of their distress is not only an act of civil courtesy, but of religion and piety not a matter of indifference, but of duty. James 1.27. Pure religion and undefiled is this to visit in affliction. That is, this is an eminent act of an exercise of religion, the evidence and fruit of sincere religion, and the virgins doing this was an act and instance of her piety, as well as of her civil courtesy. Observe, too, the religious joy and spiritual rejoicing which the neighbors and kindred expressed at the lying-in of Elizabeth. They did not meet together upon that great occasion only to eat and drink and make merry, but they rejoiced that the Lord had showed great mercy upon her. Oh, how rarely is this example followed in our age. At the delivery of the mother and at the birth of the child, how little is God taken notice of. How little is his power magnified and his goodness celebrated in opening the womb, in giving strength to bring forth. And how rarely is this the subject of discourse at the woman's labor. Verily, If the mercy of a child and the safe delivery of the mother be not the first and principal thing taken notice of at such rejoicing meetings, they look more like pagan than Christian rejoicings. Verses 59 through 66. And it came to pass that on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they called him Zacharias after the name of his father. And his mother answered and said, Not so, but he shall be called John. And they said unto her, There is none of thy kindred that is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, how he would have him called. And he asked for a writing table, and wrote, saying, His name is John. And they marveled all. And his mouth was opened immediately, and his tongue loosed, and he spake and praised God. And fear came on all that dwelt around about them. And all these things were noised abroad throughout all the hill country of Judea. And all they that heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What manner of child shall this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. Burkett notes. Observe here, 1. The circumcision of the child at eight days old, according to the commandment, Genesis 17, where note, first, the act, circumcising. Secondly, the time at eight days old. God commanded every male child to be circumcised because the males by the foreskin propagate sin and convey original impurity. By this ordinance, God gave his people to understand the exceeding filthiness of sin and that man brings something into the world with him which ought presently to be cut off. Also note the time of circumcising the child at eight days old, not before lest the child should be too weak to bear the pain and it must not defer longer lest God interpret the delay to be a contempt of the ordinance. Hence, by the way, we may learn that God did not tie salvation to the outward sacrament, for if the child had perished, that died uncircumcised, it had been a hard thing to defer circumcision eight hours. Tis not the want, but the contempt and neglect of the sacrament that damns it. It come to pass on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. We find in scripture the ordinance appointed, the time limited but neither the person nor the place declared. Moses's wife circumcised the child, and that in an inn. Exodus 4. A duty is sometimes positively enjoined in the scripture when the circumstances belonging to the duty are undetermined. Thus the sacrament of the Lord's Supper is appointed by Christ, but the time, the place, the gesture are not positively commanded, but to be prudiciously determined. Observe 2. The name is given or at least declared at the time of the child circumcising, and that by his parents. His mother said, he shall be called John. But how did his mother know that, when her husband was dumb? Answer, tis like her husband Zachary had by a writing informed his wife concerning the whole vision, and what name was imposed upon him by the angel. Therefore she says, he shall be called John, and Zachary ratifies it. His name is John. The nomination was originally from the angel. The imposition of the name is now at circumcision from the parents. Observe three, how ancient a custom it has been to give names to children according to the names of their fathers or kindred. There is none of thy kindred of this name, they say. The Jews made it part of religion to give suitable names to their children and significant names. Accordingly, they either gave them names to put them in remembrance of God's mercy to them or of their duty to him. Thus, Zachary signifies the remembrance of God, which name points at God's mercy in remembering him and his duty in remembering God. Well then, it is usual and useful for parents to give significant names to their children. Then let children have a holy ambition to make good the signification of their names. Thus, John signifies the grace of God. But how will that gracious name rise up in judgment against that child that is graceless? Observe 4 how Zachary's speech is immediately restored to him upon the naming of the child. The angel, verse 20, told him he should be dumb till the things that he had told him should be performed. And now they were performed. His tongue is loose, and he praised God in a most thankful manner. Observe 5, the effect which all this had upon the neighborhood. Fear came upon all them that dwelt around about them. That is, an awful and religious fear of God occasioned by these miraculous operations, and they laid up these sayings in their hearts, that is, considered of them and pondered upon them. It argues a very vain spirit and temper of mind when we pass over the observations of God's wonderful acts with a slight regard. The true reason we do so little admire the wonderful works of God is because we consider so little of them. Observe 6, the special favor vouchsafed by God to his child John. The hand of the Lord was with him. That is, God was in a special manner present with him to direct and assist him to protect and prosper him. The hand of God in scripture signifies the help of God, the strength and assistance of God. The hand of man is a weak and impotent hand, a short and ineffectual hand. But the hand of God is a strong hand, an almighty hand, able to assist and help, able to protect and preserve. The hand of the Lord was with him that is, the hand of God and the help of God, the love and favor of God to support him, the power and providence of God to protect and preserve him. Lord, let our hearts be with thee, and then thine heart and thy helping hand will be with us. Verses 67 to 79 And his father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Ghost and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And thou, child, shalt be called the prophet of the highest, for thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his way, to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins, through the tender mercies of our God, whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us, to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Burkett notes, Observe here that no sooner was Zachary recovered and restored to his speech, but he sang the praises of his Redeemer and offers up a thanksgiving to God. The best return we can make to God for the use of our tongue, for the giving or restoring of our speech, is to publish our Creator's praise, to plead His cause, and to vindicate His honor. Observe, too, what it is that Zachary makes the subject matter of his song what is the particular and special mercy which he praises and blesses God for. It is not for his own particular and private mercy, namely the recovery of his speech, though undoubtedly he was very thankful to God for that mercy. But he blesses and praises God for Catholic and universal mercies bestowed upon his church and people. He did not say, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, that hath visited me in mercy, that has once more loosed my tongue and restored my speech. But blessed be the Lord that hath visited and redeemed his people. Whence learn that it is both the duty and disposition of a gracious soul to abound in praise and thankfulness to God for more Catholic and universal mercies towards the Church of God than for any particular and private mercies, how great soever, towards himself. Blessed be God for visiting and redeeming his people. Observe 3. In this evangelical hymn, there is a prophetical prediction, both concerning Christ and concerning John. Concerning Christ, he declares that God the Father had sent him of his free mercy and rich grace, yet in the performance of his truth and faithfulness, and according to his promise and oath which he made to Abraham and the fathers of the Old Testament where, note 1, he blesses God for the comprehensive blessing of the Messiah. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who hath visited his people, namely, in his Son's incarnation. The Lord Jesus Christ, in the fullness of time, made such a visit to this sinful world as men and angels admired at, and will admire to all eternity. Note 2, the special fruit and benefit of this gracious and merciful visitation, and that was the redemption of a lost world he hath visited and redeemed his people. This implies that miserable thraldom and bondage, which we were under to sin and Satan, and expresses the stupendous love of Christ in buying our lives with his dearest blood, and both by price and power rescuing us out of the hands of our spiritual enemies. Note 3, the character given of the Savior and Redeemer. He is a horn of salvation, that is, a royal and glorious, a strong and powerful Savior to his church and people. The horn in scripture signifies glory and dignity, strength and power. As the beauty, so the strength of the beast lies in his horn. Now Christ being styled a horn of salvation intimates that he be himself as a royal and princely Savior, and that the salvation which he brings is great and plentiful, glorious and powerful. God hath raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. Note 4, the nature and quality of that salvation and deliverance which the Son of God came to accomplish for us. Not a temporal deliverance, as the Jews expected, from the power of the Romans, but spiritual, from the hands of sin and Satan, death and hell. His design was to purchase a spiritual freedom and liberty for us, that we might be enabled to serve him without fear that is, without the servile and offending fear of a slave, but with the dutiful and ingenious fear of a child, and this in holiness and righteousness, that is, in the duties of the first and second table, all the days of our life. Learn hence that believers who were slaves of Satan are by Christ made God's free men. Secondly, that as such they owe God a service, a willing, cheerful, and delightful service, without fear, and a constant, preserving service all the days of their life, that we being delivered out of the hands, etc. Note 5. The source and fountain from which this glorious Savior and gracious salvation did arise and spring, namely from the mercy and faithfulness of God, to perform the mercies promised to our forefathers, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham. Learn hence that the Lord Jesus Christ, the mercy of mercies, was graciously promised and faithfully performed by God to his church and people. Christ was a free and full mercy, a suitable and seasonable mercy, and a satisfying mercy, an incomparable, unsearchable, and everlasting mercy, which God graciously promised in the beginning of time and faithfully performed in the fullness of time. Thus far, this hymn of Zachary respects the Messiah. Observe, 4, how he next turns himself to this child, and prophecies concerning him. And thou, child, shall be called the prophet of the highest, etc. Where note, 1, the nature of his office. Thou shalt be a prophet, not a common and ordinary one, but a prophet of the highest rank, the messenger of the Lord of hosts. A prophet thou shalt be, and more than a prophet. Note, too, as the nature of his office, so the quality of his work. Thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his way. Thou shalt be a herald and harbinger to the Most High. Thou shalt go before the face of the Messiah, and by thy severe reproofs and powerful exhortations shalt prepare his way before him, and make men fit and ready to receive this mighty Savior. Thou, child, shalt be as the morning star to foretell the glorious arising of this sun of righteousness. Learn hence, 1. That it is the highest honor and dignity to serve Christ in the quality and relation of a prophet. 2. That it is the office and duty of the prophets of Christ to prepare and make fit the hearts of men to receive and embrace him. Observe 5 that Zachary, having spoken a few words concerning his son, then returns instantly to celebrate the praises of our Savior, comparing him to the rising sun, which shined forth in the brightness of his gospel, to enlighten the dark corners of the world. Through the tender mercies of our God, whereby the day from on high hath visited us, to give light to them that sit in darkness. Learn hence, one, that Jesus Christ is the true Son of Righteousness, which in the fullness of time did spring from on high to visit a lost and undone world. Two, that the great errand of Christ's coming into the world and the particular end of his appearing in the flesh was to give light to them that sit in darkness. Three, that it was nothing less than infinite mercy and bowels of compassion in God and Christ, which inclined him to come from on high to visit them that sit in darkness. Through the tender bowels of mercy in our God, whereby... His own and only Son, sprung from on high to visit us here below, who sat in darkness and the shadow of death, and to guide our feet into the way that leads to everlasting peace. Verse 80 And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit, and was in the deserts till the day of his showing unto Israel. Burkett notes Here we have a short account of John's private life before he entered upon his public ministry which was at thirty years of age. He grew, that is, in bodily stature, and waxed strong in spirit, that is, in the gifts and graces of the Holy Spirit, which increased with his age and showed themselves in him every day more and more. And he was in the desert, that is, the mountainous country of Judea, where he was born, till the time of his preaching to and amongst the Jews. Not that he lived like a hermit, recluse from all society with men, but contented himself to continue in an obscure privacy, till called forth to promulge and preach the gospel. And when that time was come, John leaves the hill country, and enters with resolution and unwearied diligence upon his public ministry. Teaching us, by his example, that when we are fit and ripe for public service, we should no less willingly leave our obscurity than we took the benefit of it for our preparation. John abode in the deserts till his showing unto Israel, that is, till the time of his setting forth to execute his office among the Jews.